Chapter Four of the Merry-Go-Round by W. Somerset Maugham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When Miss Lee entered her drawing room, she found the punctual dean already dressed for dinner, very distinguished in silk stockings and buckled shoes. And presently Bella appeared, attired with sombre magnificence in black satin. I went to Holywell Street this morning to look round bookshops said the dean but holywell street is pulled down london isn't what it was polly each time i come i find old buildings gone and old friends scattered with melancholy he thought of the pleasant hours he had spent fingering second-hand books and the scent of musty volumes rose to his nostrils the new shops to which the jewish vendors had removed no longer had the old dusty nonchalance the shelves were too spick and span the idle luncher apparently less welcome mrs barlow bassett and her son were announced she was a tall woman of handsome presence with fine eyes and a confident step her grey hair abundant and curling recalled in this elaborate arrangement the fashion of the eighteenth century and her manner of dress suggested by the modes of that time gave her somewhat the look of a sitter for sir joshua reynolds her movements were characterized by a kind of obstinate decision and she bore herself with the fine uprightness of a woman bred when deportment was still a part of maidenly education she was immensely proud of her son a tall strapping fellow of two-and-twenty with black hair no less fine than his mother's and with singularly beautiful features big-boned but unmuscular very dark his large brown eyes strict nose and olive skin his full sensual mouth made him a person of striking appearance and of these he was by no means unconscious he was a good-humoured lazy creature languid as an oriental houri unscrupulous untruthful whom his mother by an exacting adoration had forced into insincerity left the widow of means mrs barlow bassett had devoted her life to the upbringing of this only son and was pleased to think that hitherto she had kept him successfully from all knowledge of evil she meant him to find in her friend and confidant as well as a mother and boasted that from her he had never kept a single action nor a single thought i want to talk to mr kent this evening mary she said he's a barrister isn't he and we've just made up our minds that reggie had better go to the bar reggie who notwithstanding the attraction of a splendid uniform had no inclination for the restraints of a military career and disdained the commercial walk in which his father had earned a handsome fortune was quite content to put up with the more gentlemanly side of the law he knew vaguely that a vast number of dinners must be eaten a prospect to which he looked forward with equanimity and afterwards saw himself becomingly attired in wig and gown harrowing juries to the admiration of the world in general you're going to sit next to basil answered miss ley frank hurrell is to take you down i'm sure reggie would do well at the bar and i can keep him with me in london you know he's never given me a moment's anxiety and sometimes i do feel proud that i've kept him so good and pure but the world is full of temptations 
and he's so extraordinarily good-looking. He is very handsome, returned Miss Lay, pursing her lips. She thought her knowledge of character must be singularly at fault if Reggie was the virtuous creature his mother imagined. The sensuality of his face suggested no great distaste for the sins of the flesh, and the slyness of his dark eyes no excessive innocence. Basil Kent and Dr. Harrow, meeting on the doorstep, came in together. It was Frank Harrow whom Miss Lay, somewhat exacting in these matters, had described as the most amusing person she knew. His breadth of shoulder and solid build were too great for his height, and he had reason to envy Reggie Bassett's length of leg. Nor was his face handsome, for his brows were too heavy and his jaw too square. But the eyes were expressive, mocking sometimes so hard, and others very soft, and there was a persuasiveness in his deep, resonant voice, of which he well knew the power. A small black moustache concealed the play of a well-shaped mouth and the regularity of his excellent teeth. He impressed you as a strong man, of no very easy temper, who held himself in admirable control. Silent with strangers, he disconcerted them by an unwilling frigidity of manner, and though his friends, knowing that at all times he could be depended upon, were eager in his praise. Acquaintance often accused him of superciliousness. To be popular with all and sundry, he took no sufficient pains to conceal his impatience of stupidity, and though Miss Lay thought his conversation interesting, others to whom for some reason he was not attracted found him absent and taciturn. An extremely reserved man, few knew that Frank Harrow's deliberate placidity of expression masked a very emotional temperament. In this he recognised a weakness and had schooled his face carefully to betray no feeling. But the feeling all the same was there, turbulent and overwhelming, and he profoundly mistrusted his judgment, which could be drawn so easily from the narrow path of reason. He kept over himself unceasing watch, as though a dangerous prisoner were in his heart ever on the alert to break his chains. He felt himself the slave of a vivid imagination, and realised that it stood against the enjoyment of life which his philosophy told him was the only end of existence. Yet his passions were of the mind rather than of the body, and his spirit urged his flesh constantly to courses wherein it found nothing but dissolution. His chief endeavour was the search for truth, and somewhat to Miss Lay's scorn, for she rested easily in a condition of satisfied doubt, her attitude towards life indicated by a slight shrug of the shoulders. He strove after certainty with an eagerness which other men reserve for love or fame or opulence, but all his studies were directed at the last to another end convinced that the present life was final he sought to make the completest use of his every moment and yet it seemed preposterous that so much effort such vast time and strange concurrence of events the world and man should tend towards nothing he could not but think that somewhere a meaning must be discernible and to find this examined science and philosophy with an anxious passion that to his colleagues at St. Luke's 
worthy craftsmen who saw no further than the slide on their microscopes would have seemed extraordinary and almost insane but it would have required an imaginative person to discover in dr harrow at that moment traits of conflict as vehement as any passionate disturbance of more practical people he was in high good humour and while they waited for the remaining guests talked to miss ley isn't it charming of me to come he asked not at all she replied it's very much nicer for a greedy person like you to eat my excellent dinner than to nibble an ill-cooked chop in your own rooms how ungrateful at all events as a stop-gap i have no duties to my neighbour i may devote myself entirely to the pleasures of the table like a friend of mine people weren't so polite forty years ago and much more amusing who when his neighbour made some very foolish remark shouted at her go on with your soup madame tell me who else is coming said frank mrs castilian but she'll be monstrously late she thinks it's fashionable and the county in london has to take so many precautions not to seem provincial mrs murray is coming do you still want me to marry her no replied miss ley laughing i've given you up though it wasn't nice of you to abuse me like a pickpocket because i offered you a handsome widow with five thousand a year think of the insufferable bore of marriage and in any case heaven save me from an intellectual wife if i marry at all i'll marry my cook i wish you wouldn't make my jokes frank but as a matter of fact unless i'm vastly mistaken mrs murray has made up her mind to marry our friend basil oh said frank miss ley noticed a shadow across his eyes and examined his expressions sharply don't you think it would be a very suitable thing if she did i have no views on the subject returned frank i wonder what you mean by that basil is poor and handsome and clever and mrs murray has always had an inclination for literary men that's the worst of marrying a cavalryman. it leads you to attach so much importance to brains was captain murray an absolute fool my dear frank you don't ask if a guardsman has intelligence but whether he can play polo captain murray did two wise things in his life he made a will leaving his wife a large fortune and then promptly departed to a place where stupidity is apparently no disadvantage miss ley for bella's peculiar edification had invited also the most fashionable cleric in london the reverend carlison farley vicar of all souls grosvenor square and it amused her to see the look of frank harrow who detested him when this gentleman was announced mr farley was a man of middle size with iron grey hair carefully brushed and a rather fine head his well-manicured hands were soft and handsome adorned with expensive rings he was an amateur of good society and could afford such were his fascinations to be very careful in his choice of friends a coronet no longer dazzled a man who realized how hollow was earthly rank beside earthly riches poverty he could excuse only in a duchess for there is in the strawberry leaves even when faded and sere they wreathe the wrinkled brow of a dowager something which inspires respect in the most flippant 
His suave manner and intelligent conversation had gained him powerful friends when he was but a country rector, and through their influence the opportunity came at last to move to a sphere where his social talents met their due appreciation. Ecclesiastical dignity, like the sins of the fathers, may descend to the third and fourth generation, and obviously a man whose grandfather was a bishop could not lack decorum. Something was surely due to a courteous person who had been actually born in an episcopal palace. Mrs. Castilian, as her hostess predicted last to arrive, at length appeared. I hope I'm not late, Miss Lay, she said, putting out both hands with a pretty little gesture of appeal. Not very, replied her hostess. Knowing that you make a point of being unpunctual, I take care to ask you for half an hour earlier than anyone else. In solemn procession, the company marched down to the dining room, and Mr. Farley surveyed the table with satisfaction. I always think a well-dressed table one of the most truly artistic sights of our modern civilization, he remarked to his neighbor, and his eyes wandered round the dining room, in the furniture of which he observed a comforting but discreet opulence. Mr. Farley had known the house in Miss Dwarry's lifetime. I notice now that the portrait of her no longer hung in its accustomed place. As you have removed that excellent picture of the former occupants of this house, Miss Lay, he said, with a graceful wave of his white and jewelled hand. I couldn't bear that she should watch me eat three meals a day, replied his hostess. I have a vivid recollection of her dinners. She fed me on husks and on acorns, like the prodigal son, and really got me with accounts of the torment that awaited me in an after-life. The dean smiled gravely. He looked upon Miss Lay with a kind of affectionate disapproval, and so often he rebuked her for the books she read or for the flippancy of her conversation, took always in good part the irony with which she met his little sermons. "'You're very uncharitable, Polly,' he said. "'Of course, Eliza was a difficult person to live with, but she exacted no more from others than she exacted from herself. I always admired her strong sense of duty,' It was very striking at the present time when everyone lives entirely for pleasure. We may not be so virtuous as our father, Sargonon, answered Miss Lay, but we are very much easier to live with. After all, forty years ago, people were positively insufferable. They spoke their minds, which is a detestable habit. Their temper was abominable, and they drank more than was good for them. I always think my father was typical of his period. When he flew into a passion, he called it righteous anger, and when I did anything to which he objected, he suffered from virtuous indignation. Do you know that till I was fifteen, I was never allowed to taste butter, which was thought bad both for my figure and my soul? I was brought up exclusively on Dripping and Jeremy Taylor. The world was the hazardous path beset with jeans and snares. And at every turn and corner were immature volcanoes from which arose sufferous fumes of hellfire. It was an age of tyranny and vapours, said Frank, of old gentlemen who were overbearing and young ladies who swooned. I'm sure people aren't so good as they used to be, said Mrs. Bassett, glancing at her son, 
He was much engrossed in a conversation with Mrs. Castilian. They never were, answered Miss Lay. The perverseness of men would have made an infidel of me, added the dean in his sweet grey voice, but for the counteracting impression of divine providence in the works of nature. Meanwhile, Reggie Bassett enjoyed his dinner far more than he expected. He found himself next to Mrs. Castilian, and on sitting down, proceeded to examine her with some effrontery. A rapid glance had told her that the boy was handsome, and when he saw what he was about, to give him opportunity at his leisure to observe her various graces, she began to talk volubly with her other neighbour. But presently she turned to Reggie. Well, is it satisfactory? she asked. What? Your inspection. She smiled brightly, flashing a quick, provoking look into his fine, dark eyes. Quite, he answered, with a smile, not in the least disconcerted. My mother is already thinking that Miss Ley oughtn't to have let me sit by you. Mrs. Castilian was a vivacious creature, small and dainty like a shepherdess in Dresden, China. Excitable and restless, he spoke with a loud, shrill voice and with a quick, nervous gesture. Constantly threw herself back in her chair to laugh boisterously at what Reggie said, and finding he could venture very far indeed without fear of offence, the model youth told her little scabrous stories in a low, suave voice, staring meanwhile into her eyes with the shameless audacity of a man conscious of his power it is the fascination look of the lady killer and its very impotence appears to be half its charm the rigger heart feels that here modest pretences are useless and with unhidden joy descends from the pedestal upon which the folly of man has insisted on placing her mrs castilian's face was thin and small overpowdered with rather high cheekbones her hair, intricately dressed, had an unnatural fairness, but this set Reggie peculiarly at his ease, for he had enough experience of the sex to opine that women who used such artifices were always easier to get on with than the others. He thought his neighbour quite pretty, notwithstanding her five-and-thirty years, and the somewhat faded look of a thin blonde was counterbalanced by the magnificence of her jewels and the splendour of her gown. This was cut so low that Bella, from the other side of the table, naively wondered how on earth it was kept on at all. When the men were left to smoke, Reggie, helping himself to a third glass of port, drew his chair to Harrow's. I say, Frank, he exclaimed, that was a nice little woman next to me, wasn't it? Had she never met Mrs. Castilian before? Never. Never. Regular ripper, ain't she? By Jove, I thought this dinner would be simply deadly. Politics and religion and all that rot. The mater always makes me come because she says there's intellectual conversation. My God. Frank laughed at the idea of Mrs. Barlow Bassett combining instruction with amusement for her son at Miss Lay's dinner table. But Mrs. Castilian's a bit of all right, I can tell you, little baggage, and she don't mind what you say to her. Why, she isn't like a lady at all. Is that a great recommendation? 
Well, ladies ain't amusing, are they? You talk to em off the academy and all that sort of rot, and you've got to take care you don't swear. Ladies may be all very well to marry, but upon my soul, for giving you a good time, I prefer them a bit lower in the scale. A little later, on the stairs, when they were going up to the drawing-room, Reggie slipped his arm through Frank's. I say, old man, don't give me away if my mater thanks you for asking me to dinner on Saturday. But I haven't. Neither have I the least desire that you should die with me on that day. Good Lord, you think I want to come and talk about bugs and beetles all the evening? Not much. I'm going to die with a little girl I know, typewriter, my boy, and a real love touch. Stunning little thing, I can tell you. But I don't see why, because you wish to entertain a young person connected with typewriting, I should imperil my immortal soul. Reggie laughed. Don't be an ass, Frank. You might help me. You don't know how utterly rotten it is to have a mother like mine, who wants to keep me tied to her apron strings. She makes me tear everything I do, and of course I have to fake up some yarn. The only thing in it is that she'll swallow any damned lie I tell her. You can tell her lies till you are blue in the face, said Frank, but I don't see why the devil I should. Don't be a beast, Frank. You might help me just this once. It won't hurt you to say I'm grubbing with you. The other night, by Jove, I nearly gave the show away. You know she always waits up for me. I tell her I should be working late with my crema and went to the Empire. Well, I met a lot of chaps there and got a bit squiffy. There would have been a shindy if she'd noticed it, but I managed to pull myself together a bit and sat I'd got the very deuce of a headache. The next day I heard her tell someone that I was next door to a teetotella. They reached the drawing-room and Frank found himself close to Mrs. Bassett. Oh, Dr. Harrow, she said, I want to thank you so much for asking Reggie to dinner on Saturday. He's been working so hard that I think a little relaxation will do him good, and his tutor keeps him sometimes till past eleven. It can't be good for him, can it? The night before last he was so tired when he came in that he could scarcely get up the stairs. I'm delighted that Reggie should care to come and die with me sometimes, answered Frank, somewhat grimly. I'm always glad to think he's with you. It's so important that a young man should have really trustworthy friends, and I feel sure your influence is good for him. Reggie, listening to this, gave Frank a very slow and significant wink, then went up with a light heart to resume his conversation with Mrs. Castilian. End of chapter 4